0: This is IAQ Radio, indoor air quality radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry with your host, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes.
1: Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode 603 and we welcome Claudette Hanks-Reichel to the show, Dr. Reichel, um, From the LSU Ag Department and La House. And we're going to talk about hurricanes, sustainability, and restoration. Before we get started, we need to thank our sponsors. They are the reason IAQ Radio is still around and still free. Our newest sponsors are the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification. Learn more at IICRC.org. And Healthy Buildings America 2021 to be held in Honolulu, Hawaii, August 10 through 12, 2021. Learn more at
2: hbs2021-america.org. IAQ Radio Association sponsors are the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. Learn more at acgih.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute. Learn more at ciriscience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association. Learn more at iaqa.org. AIHA, healthier workplaces, a healthier world. Learn more at aiha.org. And the Restoration Industry Association. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. IAQ Radio Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories. Learn more at AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And now you
0: can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to Zlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question.
3: Hello, everyone. The I Q Radio Trivia Question for today, Friday, October 23rd. 2020. has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, providing unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Congratulations go out to Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental, Dayton, Ohio. Who was first to identify crown fires as a type of fires spread by wind moving quickly across the tops of trees? Here's today's IAQ radio trivia question How long ago was the noun resilience, meaning the act of rebounding, first used? Back to you, Joe. Thanks,
1: Cliff. Today's guest, Dr. Claudette Hanks Reichel, is a professor and extension housing specialist with the LSU Ag Center. She serves as the director of the, the La House Resource Center, a public exhibit of multiple high-performance housing solutions and a hub of extension education programs to advance resource-efficient, durable, and healthy housing for the southern climate and natural hazards. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Hanks Reichel. Oh,
4: I'm thrilled to be here.
1: It's great to have you back. Um, you know, we were it's been so crazy this year, you know, you got the COVID and, and all these other uh, big events occurring, the fires out west, and it seems to us the hurricanes have kind of been lost in the shuffle. And when we thought about, you know, Louisiana, we thought about you and wanted to bring you on. Can, can you give listeners a little update on how things are going Oh,
4: I really, I really appreciate that because Southwest Louisiana, you know, the coastal area, but all the way up to the middle of the state has been hammered. And, and it was just a blip in the news because of everything else going on. So yeah. they are the forgotten disaster victims. and And as a result, there hasn't been as much support and they are struggling. They are really struggling. They got hammered the, the lake charles um, and coastal southwest louisiana got hammered by the strongest hurricane to hit our coast in 150 years wow. but nobody realizes that it was a cat four and then uh six weeks later another storm hit the exact same area about 20 miles uh you know the centers just differed and and the second storm was a very wet one that that just compounded all of the problems uh, with flooding after all of the wind damage. So there is a, a, there was a great deal of power outage, quite a bit of damage in those areas, and it is, it is slow going to recovery. Oh.
1: And it, it was, I think, a little west of um, New Orleans, and, and those both hit in pretty much the same
2: area.
4: Yeah, you know, Louisiana is shaped like a boot, so it's yep. the heel, is the heel of the boot. So New Orleans really, you know, dodged the bullet completely, you know, almost no effect, just a a little bit of wind. And Baton Rouge as well, but it's that west side like close to Texas that um, that really got it and then it it's went across the state and and even central louisiana got a good bit of, of wind damage and power outage, but the the coastal part of the state Southwest Louisville. It was the same one hammered by Rita after Hurricane Katrina. And it was the forgotten community there, too, because Katrina got and New Orleans got all of the, the media attention. Yeah. So so, you know, these folks finally recovered from from Rita. Then came Ike. And then and then now, um, you know, Laura and the double whammy with Delta has has really um, you know made hard conditions there
1: what what kind of help is most needed in those communities right now?
4: Well, you know folks are, are are struggling with all of the the bureaucracy and the red tape to you know to with their insurance and and to try and get assistance. Many people are displaced they still haven't got you know they were without water and power for a long time, so you know I'm sure that they need you know. Reputable contractors and businesses to come in and help um, because there there's not enough locally, but the donations have been slim compared to the amount of damage because there's been so so much competing for people's um, media time and attention, so I would encourage people to um, you know to help to consider uh, either through their faith based organization that has a presence there. Or um, if they want to make a donation to the Community Foundation for Southwest Louisiana, that's a major uh, help organization there, as as well as the United Way agencies of that region. And another organization um, that started after Katrina, the South the, the St. Bernard Project, um, SBC, does a marvelous job with building and rebuilding better performing, higher quality. Um, you know, and, and resilient homes. And, and I think that they're, you know, about to get involved as well. So those are some wonderful ways to help. And, of course, I'm sure volunteers are welcome, but, uh, you know, generally through the faith-based organizations are the best way to do that.
1: You know, it's you're also in the middle of a pandemic at the same time as these hurricanes have hit. I, I didn't really prep you for this, but um, how has that affected the recovery efforts, if at all?
4: It, it has been, you know, that has added to the complication, particularly in terms of, of evacuations, um, you know, the evacuation centers, uh, you know, were basically not utilized. So, so folks were sent to hotels um, all over the state and, and in Texas. And, um, and, you know, there's, you know, a lot of people are still there, um, those who didn't have resources on their own. So it, it's affected that as well as the cleanup and restoration. You know, it's had an impact there. And then damage assessments have been hampered um, by needing all these, you know, COVID protocols in, in the process, you know, down to the disaster standards. So, you know, fortunately, we're not at our, our biggest peak of the COVID that we had earlier. You know, we were the highest per capita um, you know, in in terms of of cases, um, you know the positivity rates of of tests in early on, and and now that's dropped, but it's still an issue. We are we are in phase three. We have a mask mandate, and um, and so it 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 does make it difficult. Plus, just thinking cleanup, you can't get an N95 respirator.
2: Yeah, you know, the
4: general public, they're not available, and so they're they're having to make do with what they can get, like these key, key you know, k or something like that. So, so you know, so many people do their own, you know, tear down and and, and clean up and deconstruction and clean up and, and they can't get the proper uh, personal protection respirators.
1: I'm wondering if there's um, a concern that, you know, with people going to shelters, I'm sure there is some concern that, that you may see cases rise again. Like you said, you, you were a hot spot for a while. It seemed to have settled down.
4: That's why uh, they, they didn't use the shelters. They sent people, the, the state, those who could not, um, you know, who needed help, who didn't have a place to go, didn't have resources. The, the state is um, uh, uh, booked uh, rooms in hotels. So uh, they, okay. they contracted with hotels and um, which, you know, you know, ironically, kind of helped that industry. You know, which is really suffering because tourism has dried up during the pandemic. So, it it complicated. Um, it did complicate things.
1: You've got a you've got a triple whammy hitting you. you. You've got the hurricanes, you've got COVID, and you've got the the economic nightmare that's occurring through a lot of places around the country. Whereas um, Louisiana and New Orleans, with respect to you know, um, restaurants and, and bars. And, you know, I know that's a, a big part of the tourism industry down there. Are you, are you in a shutdown mode or are they allowed to be open right now?
4: We're, we're in a partial, um, reopening mode, what, what we call phase three or the CDC's phase three. And so, um, restaurants are, are, are back open. Um, with, I believe, 50% capacity, um, you know, in seating, mask wearing is is required, but not while you're eating, so they need to social distance, so, you know, you can only, you can't seat people close together, but um, actually, New Orleans has had a a slower reopening because they were such a hotbed um, after, in the beginning of the pandemic, due to Mardi Gras, it's, it's assumed, yeah. um you know they they were one of the nation 's big hotbeds, so they have been more cautious and and, and slower, which you know that 's that 's a tourism economy, so it has been devastating to um to New Orleans but they are starting to reopen um, there 's starting to be you know some business to the hotels as well um, uh, but you know things indoors that 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 has been an issue. Um, fortunately, we still have more warm weather down here. I mean, not everyone would agree that's fortunate, but but it it means that people are outdoors a lot. So we haven't started to see the the cold weather indoor spikes that um, you know the more northern states have.
1: I had scheduled this for kind of later in the in the in the call, but I, I, while we're on the topic, how are things at LSU with respect to COVID? Uh, is the school completely open is it a a mix of things and maybe you can talk a little about the ag center too and how covid has affected them
4: it's a hybrid Um, you know the the university is open classes are in session but but many of the classes especially the very large you know freshman sophomore levels and the very large classes are online other classes are um at i believe 50 percent capacity so they're having to have you know, additional sections. So for the teaching faculty, it has been a huge uh, workload to make this adjustment to online, you know, think about testing and proctoring and, and everything that has to, you know, conversion of what you do to online and labs. Labs are, you know, a real head scratcher. So, so but but the university is open. We have very strict protocols. As far as, as my center, um, you know, I don't teach students, but but we have La house resource center. So just now, just recently, when we moved to phase three, we have reopened it to the public, but by appointment only, with a limit of six people at a time. I and see. so uh, we're still doing some of our training classes, but we're you know we limit it to fifty percent capacity of the meeting space, and everyone is required to wear masks through the whole darn thing.
1: I see. Hey, Clifford, do you have a question or follow-up? I want to make sure I gave you a chance to Yeah, I,
3: I do, and I'm not sure whether or not you'll know the answer, Claudette, but um, if someone was affected by the hurricane uh, and filed an insurance claim, and then six weeks later they're reaffected by the hurricane and file another claim, uh, can they have two claims at the same time, or do you have any idea? Because I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are facing this, and I'm just wondering what the answer is.
4: Yeah, I believe that they can make two separate claims. You know, okay. there are two separate events, two separate peril events. The, the issue is that there's two kinds of insurance that, um, that come into play here. Uh, homeowner's insurance is what would cover the wind damages, right. but it does not cover flood damage gotcha. storm surge damage and so storm surge is this you know it it, it sort of you know excuse the pun muddies the waters right. uh, because you you have destruction from that and so you it you know it's hard to tell how much which of the destruction is from wind and which is from storm surge mm-hmm. but um, but you, you know there's some indication but the the first storm uh, Lara was a wind event there was some flooding but it didn't bring us uh, to the coastal community, but further in into Lake Charles, there was not as much flooding. Um, the second storm, Delta was a wet one and it, the, the wind was not as strong, but it brought more flooding. And, and so, you know that's a terrible double whammy. I mean, here people are with damage to their homes and their roofs, blue tarps on them. And the second storm comes six weeks later, blows off the tarps and floods. Yeah. I, I mean, just, you know, the, the stress that it takes, you know, that it causes um, and the toll that it takes, the community of, of you know, of Calcasieu Parish, Cameron, Cameron Parish is kind of wiped out. Calcasieu Parish, which is where Lake Charles is and, and some smaller towns and Evangeline Parish, they are really, really hammered.
1: Thank you. Well, we encourage listeners to to go ahead and, you know, Please help. See if they can't help out in some way, whether you can volunteer or send a couple bucks, please do. Um, it's been a tough year for those in, in southwest Louisiana. I think I got that right.
0: Exactly. Um,
1: on the last time we, we had you here about a little over, I guess, two and a half years ago now.
4: Has it been that long? Jeez. It has.
1: <laughs> and, and we learned while you were in graduate school you started to focus on trends. So the first one being, you know, post disaster repair, then you got focused more on energy efficiency, and then indoor air quality, and now sustainability, um, which kind of pulls them all together and integrates them all, which you, you talked about on the first show. What I'm curious about now is what new trends, if any, are you seeing?
4: There there are two that I'm working on, um, you know, are, are focusing a, a good bit on, on now or, or what's new is, is one is resilience. Resilience has really finally come to the forefront. I mean, we worked on disaster recovery and disaster resistance. We used to use the term mitigation, everybody hated that word. But resilience has a broader definition, but it, it's come to the structure, to the home as well. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, you know, interesting, after Katrina, you would think that really would have brought it to the forefront, and it started a little bit, but it was slow. Um, about a dozen years ago, I was asked to present, you know, how to combine resilience with energy efficiency at EBA, the Energy Environmental Building Alliance Conference. Six people came to the session. I, it was kind of a bust. Then two or three years ago, I was asked to speak on a similar kind of topic, standing room only huh. in the room. And these are energy efficiency focused kinds of, you know, builders and and, and practitioners and designers and, and um, program folks, you know, all about energy. So I figured, oh, they're all about energy. Then I said resilience. Well, now they are. It's part of Department of Energy's Building America program. They're focusing on it. They're bringing a lot of resources into their solution center uh, for people. Uh, so it's not just a FEMA thing anymore. It is, it is you know pervasive. I see it in the design community and the building community really starting to focus on resilience, which has a broader definition than just damage um, resistance. You know, to me, what resilience means is the ability to bounce back quickly after a disaster. So you have enough disaster resistance, but also strategic in terms of of the design of the structure, you know, the materials used as well as the whole community and the infrastructure to be able to resume normal life quickly and affordably you know, as inexpensively and with as much do-it-yourself, you know, as possible too. So, so the ability to bounce back quickly because that is, um, you know, what complicates housing um, damage after a disaster. It's not so much how a house is damaged and then what you should do after that. That's a big part of it. But the other part that really complicates it is that you're not the only one. Uh There may be hundreds of thousands, thousands or hundreds of thousands of others in the same situation. So there's not enough of anything to go around to recover. There's not enough materials. Prices escalate. And there certainly are not enough qualified contractors locally available. So the scammers just swoop in and they take advantage of people who are desperate to get back in their homes. So we see so much of that, of, of unqualified scammers coming in and, and doing poor workmanship or unfinished work, and then they take people's life savings while they're waiting for disaster resistance. So that is really, you know, it, it takes from being a disaster victim to then being a victim again. And and that is is why, you know, our program has focused so much in recent years on resilience and how to make your homes um, more resilient so you can bounce back more quickly. The other trend and issue of course is COVID. And so COVID has amplified, we've been doing indoor air and healthy home programs since the mid nineties, but but now it has a whole new, um, you know, perspective and, and a, and a breadth to it. So, um, you know, we've done some, uh, I, I've done some, uh, uh, training and and some you know outreach uh, you know some writing and so forth on on reducing um, COVID risk within your home of healthy home issues as a result of it everything from you know people doing all these home improvement projects while they're stuck at home and and the uh, the lead paint hazard that may be creating. To what you can do to maximize the immunity of your family members and then to reduce the chance, the risk of transmission among family members in the home. So, so the air quality, the ventilation issues, negative pressure, you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, we're trying to get that information out to you.
1: That's interesting. I, what I'd like to do is, John, if you could uh, put up the La House website. We, we talked earlier in the week, and I think what we looked at earlier in the week was a really good example of of how you're looking at resilience um, and and how you're you're helping people either do it themselves or make sure that contractors that are doing the work for them are following a set of guidelines essentially for, for putting things back more resilient than they were when they were initially built. And, um, I think one of the terms you used, uh, I want to make sure I get that right here. Where did I put that one? Floodproof walls, flood hardy flood, restoration. Flood
4: recovery icon there.
1: Yeah, you were talking about flood hardy restoration. I thought that was a really yes. interesting term.
4: That that has kind of been my soapbox, um, you know, and and it, and it really it started when I first came into this job in in the eighties, but it's evolved, and we have new products and materials that can make it, you know, much more um, robust and and easier to accomplish. Um, flood hardy was really you know, a, a takeoff on the concept of wet flood proofing, but I don't like that term because no one understands what it means. You know, that that's the FEMA term. And you see there's a publication about wet flood proofing. Um, wet flood proofing is about making it to where the waters come in, but they do little damage. And um, and so that's, you know, elevating what you can, your equipment and so forth, you know, some some of your outlets and wiring and using flood damage resistant materials. But flood hardy, you know, we started working on that after Katrina because of, you know, the depth of the flooding. And the concept is that the flood, um, the base flood elevation that people are required to build above is woefully inadequate compared to the risk. You know, we had huge floods here in the Baton Rouge, central Louisiana in 2016. That was our great flood that nobody remembers because it wasn't a storm and then the next year hurricane harvey um you know hammered the houston area so between the two in those two years we had probably about three hundred thousand homes that had been flooded and three-fourths of them were not in a flood zone okay get the message here wow it happens a lot and so that is where i really ramped up our efforts um, You know, on on not just flood-hardy new construction like we did after, um, you know, like we worked on after Katrina, but flood-hardy restoration to homes that are not going to be raised. You know, the majority of the housing that was damaged in those floods were slab-on-grade homes with brick veneer siding. What the heck are you going to do with that? People did not have the money, even those with flood, in, the few who had flood insurance, the claims did not provide for replacing, for taking down the brick veneer to be able to replace damaged structural sheathing, you know, and do the, and, and put a new weather resistant barrier and do everything right from the outside. So people were gutting their homes. They knew, to, finally knew to do that, to gut the homes and pull out all the, the wet stuff and then the questions started pouring in. You know, my pun is that I was flooded. I, I didn't flood, but I was flooded with questions. And, um, <laughs> and then, so, so they, they kept coming in so much that I finally decided to develop those FAQs that you saw on the website to answer a lot of those common questions, make it you know available online, and also throw in some questions people weren't asking a lot, but should be. You know, So that's where we get a lot of the healthy home, you know, and indoor air information in there as well. Um, But people were scratching their heads about what to do. They had this old blackboard, fiberboard sheathing that was just mush. So they cut it away and then not know what to do at that point.
1: And they Um, cut it away from the inside. From the
4: inside. You know, they they take out the drywall. They take out the insulation. They see, you know, the, the condition of the sheathing, and they cut it away and then say, now what? Yep. <laughs> yeah, yep. What do we do? So um and, and should we remove it? But what if it's all moldy? You know, so all these questions came in. And and so at at that point, um my team and I, we also, you know, kind of tandem worked a little bit with, with Joe Stebrick, you know, building science, and, and we came up with three um three alternative restoration solutions to deal with that. Um, that I, I wouldn't call like you know, they're they're not best practice. Best practice is remove the the brick veneer and do everything with the outside. But the reality is, it ain't gonna happen. <laughs> it just can't happen. So here is one of them. This is the one that I really like the best. It's very robust. It's the concept. Of, of using the new rain screen products that are normally used for, um, you know, for, for basements and so forth. That is a drainage mat with a fabric, um, you know, on, on one side um, to, to keep stuff from going through and put that up against the brick from the inside to maintain that drainage gap in space. But it's, you know, it's thin, less than half an inch generally. And then... Um, Restore the, um, the, the brick ledge flashing. Generally what's easiest to do that is to use the, the liquid applied flashing mm-hmm. um, materials. Do that. Remove the mortar droppings that are blocking the weep holes. So you clear out those weep holes. Put in this range screen. You can cut it, you know, section 16 on center and just push it in. And then using closed cell spray foam that can be applied And it'll squish between that and and the studs and then fill another two inches between the studs and the cavities and so that way you can leave the brick ties in place you can leave all the hardware in place and that spray foam as it cures it does not take in water if it's closed cell and and so it becomes your weather resistant barrier And your insulation, which is also airtight, which they probably didn't have before, more R-value because it's not compressed and and so forth than they had before. And it becomes structural. So so the cured two to three inches of of closed-cell spray foam would have a similar structural load capacity to structural sheathing. To wood structure, you know, like plywood or, or, or OSB. So it it replace so it you know it replaces all of those things with really a superior um, end in result to what you had before. The problem with this is that it is you know a more costly restoration than just going back the way it was, um, you know, and you need good quality closed-cell spray foam applicators. So they, are, chances are, you know, maybe in hard, hard to get as well, or in short supply. Um, and it, it takes a good bit of product. So it is a bit expensive. This, this next illustration you're seeing is the one um, that Joe uh, Stebrick came up with. And it, it's a little less expensive because it's using um, that, that thin um, XPS fanfold that they tend to put behind vinyl siding so using that with some, um, some little shims behind it to create a drainage space. So you put that, you know, behind the studs in, in shingle fashion, and, and then you just use spray foam just between the studs. So you're using a little less foam product, and that's a less expensive product than the rain screens. But I have to tell you, it's a real pain install, and, and you have to remove all the, all the brick ties, um, in the area where you're doing it, so you may need to then use some retrofit. So it's, you know, it it's it's more difficult to do though less expensive. Then the but third one,
1: but it's still less expensive than taking all your brick down and, and rebuilding. Oh your, yes, okay. I mean
4: even the first one is less expensive than than redoing your brick veneer. This this third one um, is not as robust, but it's it's something that. People can do without a spray foam applicator. It's it's something that that contractors and individual do-it-yourselfers can do, and and you see how the um, you know this is just kind of a demo. You see how the sheathing is, is cut away in this that that one um, you know wall bag cavity, and then um, and so rigid XPS um, you know po- extruded polystyrene foam was cut to fit in the space. So you have to cut it to, you have to measure every stud cavity and cut it to fit and then you place it in, you know, behind the, um, you know, shingle fashion, behind your new flashing, brick ledge flashing and caulk the edges and then that becomes your drainage plane, it becomes part of the insulation um, and however it does not provide the structural capacity you're missing. Mm -hmm. you know so you may need to do some cross strapping or something like that and it does not provide protection to the exterior side of the studs because it's between the studs
2: sure
4: but this is also all three of these systems are flood hardy and so if you put another layer of this to get to the r13 we need then, and, and this actually could then be removed after a flood to let everything dry. So it has that advantage. But all three of these systems, if or when, if a home floods once, chances are it may happen again. So when they flood again, there's nothing vulnerable. So part of the flood hardy is, not, is both using closed cell phones and flood damage resistant materials, but also leaving a space or providing access to be able to clean and dis- disinfect and dry after a flood without having to replace. So this um, illustration shows the concept of using wainscoting. Like if your flood tends to be less than three feet, you can have removable wainscoting panels that after the flood, you take them off you, you clean everything, you know, you flush um, with detergent solution, a sanitizing rinse, you get dehumidifiers to dry everything, and then you can just put it all back where well, you don't have to replace anything except maybe switches and outlets that were underwater. But, um, but here you can see like pop off baseboards and trim. The alternative to the removable rain is to use paperless drywall with a fiberglass mat facing instead of paper, because that's a flood damage resistant material. And then you can leave gaps between the panels and the gap would prevent wicking from one to the next. Okay. But in addition, if you cover it with trim, you can pull off the trim after a flood, do the, 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 the washout, you know, flush it with detergent and sanitizing, rinse. And if you dehumidify well enough and quickly enough, you can avoid mold and, and again, leave it in place with just removing trim clean. So what I call is the washing warehouse.
1: (laughs) I've got a, I got a break here, Claudette. This is a great, I think a great point. We're going to stop and thank our sponsors and then we'll come back to the second half.
4: Absolutely.
1: All right, we'll be back to the second half. We've got Dr. Claudette Hanks Reichel. We're talking hurricanes, resilience, and uh, you know, just sustainability along with
2: restoration. IAQ Radio industry sponsors are Particles Plus engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at particlesplus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at healthyindoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at iaqa.org the American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA, healthier workplaces, a healthier world. Learn more at AIHA.org. And RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. Siri. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute: See more deeply through science and research. Learn more at ciriscience.org. That's c-i-r-i-science.org. ACGIH, advancing the careers of professionals working in the environmental health, industrial hygiene and safety communities. Interested in defining their science at acgih.org. Okay, we're back to the
1: second half of our interview. We've got Dr. Claudette Hanks-Reichel, and we're talking hurricanes, resilience, and restoration. Um, I wanted to ask if there are any other, you know, you've kind of been through a series of these flooding and hurricane-related events. What other things have we learned that work and don't work when it comes to resilience uh, with respect to these situations?
4: Well... In terms of the wind um, after Katrina Louisiana adopted the international codes and and I tell you the wind codes work. So if if a home is built to um, you know with proper installation to the just the code that is applied for that geographic area you know and the wind loading depends upon uh, your wind design speed of your geography um, those homes, even with the Cat 4 Hurricane Laura, those newer homes, um, they were unscathed. They performed beautifully. So the wind code is working, but the wind code is seven times more protective than the base flood elevation in terms of the probabilities that are used, you know, or the fudge factor that is used, um, you know, how conservative it is. What's not working is our flood insurance program um, level of protection. And it's not that flood insurance doesn't help people. Of course it does, you know, and, and, and and it's an important program, but it, we have based our building guidelines on the BFE, the base flood elevation, which, isn't, which was developed as an underwriting guideline for the flood insurance program. It never, in my opinion, should have been the basis of construction mm-hmm. because it's woefully inadequate and, and it depends upon flood maps that may be outdated. Plus it's based upon a one, what they call the 100 year flood, but I hate that term, because what that really means is a 1% probability in any given year. So oh. that means, you know, a good quality home that lasts 100 years has 100% probability of being flooded during the life of that house. Interesting. That's what that really means. And about 25 or 30% over the life of a mortgage. That's a huge risk.
1: Yes, it is. Wow. And,
4: and plus, yes, you saw so many homes outside of flood zones um, do flood. So, so that is... Um, that is, I think, what is not working. And, and I know that there is a movement to try and, and um, make some changes to the flood insurance program to help. Uh, so when people are flood, perhaps they can get a, a larger claim to do some flood damage resistance improvements, not just put, put it back the way it was, but right now the way the program is, it, it only provides enough money to put it back exactly the way it was. So just inviting the same level of of damage and and loss that occurred over and over. Um, So that that I feel, you know, really needs reform and change. And and so it it, it amounts to people who have their own resources. You know, you see them making improvements making their homes more flood damage resistant or or flood hardy if you want to use my term flood resilient in the future but but people who who don't have their own extra resources just don't have the capacity to do that and it's it it's sad it's hmm. sad and which means they also don't have the capacity to you know hire the industry that's that's listening to this because even with the flood hardy you know if the materials aren't damaged they still need still need safe cleanup. So we still need the, you know, the water damage restoration contractors to clean up, to do the dry out, you know, because they have the types of dehumidifiers that people need to to avoid mold. And so, you know, that industry is is still very crucial, even if you have the most flood-hardy, you know, washable, drainable, dryable assembly, um, you know, it's just kind of what we promote. We still need, we still need proper cleaning and drying.
1: You know, you, you mentioned when we were talking about this topic before um, fortified roof and you sent me an article yes. on that. Yeah. And there was an insurance, I think he was an insurance representative who, who was talking about how well that has worked for them. And, and, and that is, it-
4: that is the other thing that's really working the the number one loss after hurricanes is roof damage and um and and so there is um an organization called the institute for business and home safety that really is a trade organization of the property insurance industry but this is a research um Entity where they've done lots of wonderful research and they develop programs and they developed a program called fortified and um, and it's evolved over the years. It was brand new when La House was built. And so we built it to fortified standards. So we Uh built it to, you know, 130 mile per hour wind resistance higher than what you would normally need for Baton Rouge. It was elevated three feet above the BFE instead of just at the BFE, you know, the program required two feet, you know, things like that. Um, we have the windborne debris protections, you know, and and so it's a variety of things. But but they've evolved the program. It's really wonderful. Um, they have three levels now. So the first, instead of just all or nothing, the first level is called fortified roof, because that is where the most damage is. And and it's a third party certification program that some insurance companies provide discounts for that certification. Some communities provide benefits to have that certification. But even if you don't have that or you don't get the certification, the guidelines are online and they're free yeah. for you to hand to your roofing contractor um, and to specify what you want. And they're practical. So now, you know, unlike before Katrina, now you can get win rated shingles. Um, you can get better underlayments and you can inexpensively do things to create a secondary water barrier so that if you do lose shingles in an extremely high wind event, you don't get all the water entry and all the damage from that. And so the the Fortified Roof Guidelines, um, you know, look up disastersafety.org and and then that takes you to the website of IBHS and, and all of their information. So, That is um, a really great program. Alabama has an organization that has uh, embraced it and and encouraged it. And um, Hurricane Sally, you know, the homes that had fortified roofs, you know, did great. And the homes right next door that didn't, did not do great. So, um, so there you go. So that, that is Sally recovery. So absolutely. So you can see just follow the guidelines, whether or not you do the certification. But check with your insurance. People should check with their insurance companies to see if they can get a, a discount on their homeowners for a fortified roof.
1: Yeah, that was that was in the article too. That you may be able to get a discount on homeowners. That was interesting to see. I was I was I mean, glad we talked to the, about
4: it. Right, it's up to the company. Some companies do, some don't. So just ask yours.
1: Sure. All right, what I'd like to do here is, Claudette, let's go to the the roundup, and we can bring in Pete Consigli and and make sure Cliff gets a chance to ask a question, and uh, then we'll wrap things up. Final thoughts, questions before we roll? I'm going to give my time to Pete. I'm good. Okay, (laughs) I have a feeling Pete will have a few comments. Go ahead, Pete.
5: Wow, you, I mean, Cliff? Have you been watching the Senate here? Is he yielding his time to the gentleman from Florida? That's right. Now <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, uh, you got a lot of experience with this, GluDeck, because you know you, you're just in the zone down there where they constantly get hit. And um, I, uh, you know, like I when we were kind of chatting, uh, in the, you know, before we went on the air. One of the things that I've noticed in in the area is that there's uh, there's, there's a lot of misinformation and there's a lot of, um, you know, things that are going on with the insurance companies, the consultants with the insurance companies, a lot of the national restoration firms that, you know, come into all of these different hurricane zones from other parts of the country. And a lot of times I think they don't always understand the cultures and the norms of those areas. And, and many times that, that becomes becomes very problematic in just handling the claims, particularly when, uh, some people come in to do some work, then they leave, they go back, takes a while for those to get settled. And then, you know, you have other people that get involved, and they don't always know the history. And a lot of times, unfortunately, you know, it's the property owners that kind of, you know, have the brunt of this, um, So every year, it seems, the industry hears about these kind of things. The one thing that that I will say to you, you know, of all the years that I've known you, it really dates back to the 90s when me and Mac Pierce uh, were doing the training down there when I first met Paul and Glen Ray, you know, and all all those local Cajuns that have been part of our association over the years. Um, You know, your whole outreach to the Extension Institute, I think, is pretty unique. I I don't know whether... um, uh, other universities have that, you know, funded through their states around the country or not, but, um, Well, every state I has an extension,
4: that, but they, they don't necessarily have a housing program, you know, it, it's rooted in agriculture. Right. So there's really just a handful okay. that do, that do housing related educational outreach.
5: Well, you guys kind of stumbled into this whole indoor air quality thing. then I don't know if that was by accident or whatever, but, you know, I think it's a good thing. Um, But the one thing that I want to say is let me tell you where I think the opportunity is based on some conversations and some people that reached out to me to ask for my advice from a restoration perspective is I, I believe there's an opportunity and whether this can work, whether it's going to, it's going to probably happen anyway, but whether it's going to help through your, you know, uh, through the extension Institute, I think that this education needs to take place after the hurricane season's over, with the school districts, um, you know, all the large self-insured groups down there, the ones that may have certain insurance coverages, but every time a major loss hits, they always exceed it, right? So when the insurance companies get involved early on with their people, oftentimes what they do is they spend a bunch of money. In other words, they're gonna max out that claim, but if the front end people go too far, they take the decisions away from the organization that ultimately are going to wind up have to self-pay, which usually is taxpayer money. And I think there needs to be some education that's done. And I've had people down there tell me this, and I think there'll be opportunities for experts in, in our industry to partner to do training in those areas, the institutions, the commercial, those buildings. I mean, whether it filters down to residential, I don't know, there's a lot of that going on. But I think in those self-insured entities, because I think there's a lot of time, energy, money wasted, all those kinds mm-hmm. of things. And I think it's just really an education thing that needs to happen. That would be something certainly offline that I'd you know, love to talk with you about. But it has to happen, you know, in the first and second quarters of a, of a calendar year before the hurricane season comes. You, you have to be lined up to know ahead of time what you're going to do, how you're going to handle it. And right. that seems to me to be all the education stuff that's right in your alley. So that, that's kind of, you know, what I, and listening to you, it just reinforced all of that because I'm you listen, you know, every year you probably could tell the same stories, couldn't you? <laughs> uh,
4: I, I, it is kind of on
5: repeat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, so I, I think this is important because uh, not only is it important to serve the citizens of the area, uh, it's important, you know, for the industry to, uh, you know, not to get a black eye sometimes, you know, sometimes we deserve a black eye, but a lot of times we don't deserve it. And I think there's a lack of understanding how insurance claims work, right. how, you know, when it goes past insurance proceedings. I think mean, people need to be educated in this so that they can make good decisions on, uh, you know, not just the technical decisions of what to do, but just how to handle the, you know, the, um, how to just handle the process. Because, mm-hmm. you know, Marty King said years ago when the industry evolved, he said, you know, people are vulnerable at that at that time right and they need to be able to trust people who are going to come in there have a code ethics and conduct and they're not going to take advantage of the situation and i'd like to think that you know we have a a certain group of people in the industry that buy by that not everybody does but you know every industry have opportunists and then you know so the general public and people who are at, at that stage they need to know how to differentiate between the people that are opportunist and you know not be trustful of anyone and say, well, you know, who who are the people that we can depend on? And I the people that have outreach to me, they want they want to differentiate that. They want this is what they want to know to wrap up there, Mr. Joe. They want to know number one, uh, you know, what are the proper procedure standards, how do we know what the best practices are? Number two, how do we know how to find the right guys, you know, how to qualify them and all that. And then number three, they want to know how can they integrate training with their clients, you know, and the people that they serve in the area. And anyone who does any kind of hurricane work, and this can date back as long as I can remember, when they come from out of an area to go to Texas, Louisiana, Florida, and the Carolinas, those are the main areas that always get hit with hurricanes. It's always best they either become licensed in those areas, or better yet, most of them, if they're not going to open offices there, they partner with people who are licensed in some areas who are the locals and they're not to advise them so that they, uh, you know, they don't get into the, you know, the, um, the, the social issues that are affected by the local culture. The company can know what they're doing, but if someone thinks, ah, I don't trust this guy because he's north of the Mason Dixon, well, and that's not going to, you know, that's not going to accomplish anything. So mm-hmm. anyway, I always enjoyed listening to you and, uh, and um, I, you know, I hope we're going to have summer camp this year. Oh, now, I, I hope date. so. I I missed it. Like- <laughs> now, I now I, I, re- I reached out to the I reached out to the good camp counselor because I'm trying to get my calendar date set for next year because there's a lot of industry events that are being pushed back because of the COVID that mm-hmm. normally would be in the spring that are going in the summer. So I I did get verification that we're going to still be the same dates and we're still we're going to Joe we're going to be the, it's going to be the 25th silver anniversary <sighs> Ooh. See, because the, the 20 the 24th year was not canceled or postponed apparently there was some kind of wine toast activity that took place yeah, that we, 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 a few year. of us did so that we, we're, <laughs> we're, we're having the 25th silver and and i hope it goes down a lot as usual so we're gonna have to stay tuned and uh with that i'll thank my friend the z-man for yielding his time for that i enjoyed it and and with that, I will yield back to Mr. Radio Joe to close it down or do whatever you got <laughs> to do. Thank you,
1: Pete. No, I appreciate that. I just wondered, uh, Claudette, if you had any comment on what you know Pete was suggesting there. It seems like even LSU um, may be interested in you know learning more about how to protect themselves from these types of issues.
4: I I think I think um, you know there's a lot of insight uh, and, and that was very interesting. You know, what what Pete was suggesting. Um, you know, I work strictly, you know, with the housing, you know, side of it, the housing industry. So I'm not that familiar with how the self insurance with, with, you know, public and commercial um, properties, but I, I I learned something. So I think that, yeah, that's a great suggestion and an important, um, you know, effort to, to make and and yes i wholeheartedly agree you know in our state you you are required to be licensed you know if you do work that that ends up costing um more than $7500 so so um yeah that needs to be done in advance too but it, there there are cultural issues but the but the self-insured, that's, thats uh, you know, yeah, I learned something about that. So um, I, I applaud you, and um, and let me know, you know, if there's anything I can do to help facilitate.
1: I wonder if you have any tips for restoration contractors that are, you know, coming into Louisiana to help with the, the drying and, and cleaning of these buildings.
4: Um. Yes, I, you know, I, I would say that, you know, I would really encourage them to, one, get get registered or licensed here in the state, rather than just try and, and piggyback off of someone else's um, license or, or registration. And to, um, you know, to, to learn about the types of homes that, that we have over here, you know, and and uh, uh, apply some techniques to try and make them. Um, you know, what I have a little phrase: improve um, or, or uh, restore for more than before, and and rather than just put it back the way it was, look into ways that can make it the house more resilient, and and you know, try to help your customers find a way to to do that. The other thing is to have written contracts, and that's not. Norm around here, but I think it would protect both sides if, if they came in and it would make them appear more professional as well as if they had written contractual agreements um, that, that spells out, you know, lien waivers and, and all of that, you know, put in protections for the customer um you know as as well as for yourself in that and and so that would give i think help help to provide more confidence to to the customer is
1: as part of the you know we went over the frequently asked questions um is there anything in there about uh for contractors that are trying to do this type of work or is it all geared toward the the building owners the homeowners?
4: it it was it was written primarily for the homeowners but but it it also applies to the people doing the work it it's not the business side of it you know there's nothing there to help them with their business side of it um our louisiana um uh licensing board of state contractors you know they put out information and their website and so forth to to help with that and and to provide the regulatory environment and the, and the, um the registration process but but the how to's um, you know to you know to make assessments to decide what to do to be aware of lead you know base paint in older homes and how to deal with that and and the drying threshold that we like to see so you know contractors that are not professional water damage restoration contractors don't know
5: this stuff yeah, so. right right <laughs> Hey, Bill, so, so, so listen, I, I want to comment on a, a couple things that Claudette said. The first thing, Claudette, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I never was suggesting, and I'm not suggesting, that people piggyback off someone else's license. What happens is, oftentimes, it's, it can be complicated to get the, your own licenses. So, what happens is, they partner with that contractor and work with him under his license. A lot of people do that, and I think that's okay, because you're right. If someone piggybacks and there's no control, they're kind of running wild. I don't necessarily agree with that, and I think that was your main point. Now, the other thing that I was a little taken back by, and I want to verify this with you. If Louisiana is a state that requires state licensing for contractors, normally under those laws, and most all the states that I'm familiar with, it requires that a contractor has to have a written contract. And you said it's not that... Common down there, kind of like it's a good old boy handshake agreement. And I get that, but that creates a lot of confusion. So it it, it, it is isn't it the law that you have to have a written contract under state? Oh boy, that's a problem then. Wow, that, that that's a big problem. Because I'm glad you brought that most, up
1: though. That's that's an excellent uh, point that, to bring that's, up. That's right a here.
5: huge problem because our industry is very very competent in that area through the associations with standardized agreements and contracts. Because there's 11 Western states. If that's mandatory, you can't get paid, you know, with everything west of the Rockies, wow. Hawaii, they have very similar laws. And that exists in Florida, even down to, to counties and certain jurisdictions that have laws and uh, many of the states. Now, from what I understood, and I'm not 100 percent sure, Texas tends to be kind of a little can be a little bit loose in the contracting. But I don't know. But I, but I if that's not the case, number one, that should be something that that should be updated, you know, that. That's a state issue that needs to go like through the political process, but that should be mandated. That will protect people to have those contracts. So if it's not the case, boy, anyone who would work in an area without a written contract, they they might they already have one foot on a banana peel, in my opinion. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and we see a lot me, of me, just
4: sliding around too. <laughs> let, me,
1: let me piggyback yeah, off yeah. that, um, Claudette. There is a mold licensing law in. Right. Louisiana, so that anybody that's going into Louisiana thinking they're going to do mold remediation needs to be aware yep. of that licensing law. And I don't exactly. think they've, um, they haven't waived that requirement just because they have had so many hurricanes here recently, have they?
4: Now, sometimes um, I, I have seen where they have waived the Louisiana licensure requirement temporarily to recognize people who are licensed somewhere else you know, when we have a shortage, like after a major event, but I haven't seen that occur this year. Okay. And But I, I'm not sure if that ever applied to the mold remediation contract. I think that just applied to residential contractors and, and treatment contractors. Okay. Um, but mold, yes, um, you must be licensed in this state, um, you know, to you know, charge a dollar or more <laughs> to,
2: okay. uh,
4: to do something that's I think like there's like six feet of mold or something like that, you know, I, six square feet or something. I can't remember what it is, but but there's a requirement and there's a requirement that um, you to get the license, you need insurance and all of these things and do an application and, and complete a 24 hour technical training and a legal ethics kind of course uh, you yeah, additional training there so all that all that is required um, we do offer the one of the, one of the 24-hour technical trainings Glenn teaches it uh, Pete uh, over at La house in fact it's going on right now it's in day three okay. um, because of the storm we've had we've had some interest so that is um, yeah that is a requirement and in our state you um, You must also um, pass exams to be certified um, if you use any kind of biocide. So you have to be a um,
1: pest control.
3: um, You
4: have to be right.
3: Certified applicator.
4: Certified applicator. Um, You know, there's a certain category for that. And so it's a, you know and that's with the department of agriculture and natural resources so that's a that's a separate certification so even you can be a licensed or remediation contractor but cannot use any kind of disinfectant unless you get that additional i'm sorry unless you get that additional um, hey, certification
1: be, before we wrap this up is there anything you'd like to add that we missed
4: i i um you know i I guess um, I'd really like to uh, encourage the concept of, of resilience, um, encourage people to build, to not rely on the flood insurance BFE to, you know, how they protect their homes, to provide a cushion of safety. And then the other thing is, is to help the industry be aware that there's, you know, the, the era of interest in healthy home. Indoor air quality in homes is really mushrooming right now, yeah. and the pandemic has added to that. And so, so I think it's a it's a wonderful opportunity to um, for this industry to um, you know to utilize that uh, you know and and to be of good service to people um, who are concerned about you know they're spending so much more time in their homes. More people are working at home. More people are schooling at home. Um, that you know even when we don't have lockdowns, so so that the healthfulness of homes and and the designs of homes are changing. you know they're wanting telecommuting home offices now they're they're wanting different kinds of spaces, you know homework spaces and and it's it's changed it's changed. so I think it's a new era for this indoor air quality industry.
1: It looks like you were you were correct when you. Uh, quite a while back, decided what trends to focus on 've uh, come full circle huh <laughs> it,
4: it really has I mean back in two thousand when the vision for La house came up that 's you know we were trying to put it all together, so we we wanted to integrate that all together and and now i don 't think you know we can take credit for it, but it 's finally happening <laughs> so.
1: yeah. well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you joining us and coming back and you know, updating listeners on, on what's happening uh, in what we consider to be an undercovered uh, issue and um, hope to get you back again here in the not-too-distant future.
4: Well, thank you, Joe, for the opportunity I, and and to bring awareness to the situation in southwest Louisiana. I really do appreciate it.
1: All right. You're welcome. And our thanks go out to this week's guest, Dr. Claudette Hanks-Reichel. Uh, great show. also want to thank my co-host, of Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, the Restoration Industries Global Watchdog, Pete Consigli. John, you got to have faith at the controls. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners will be back next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus.
0: For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed, saying thanks for listening.